Um, thank you very much to the Rappaports. It's a real privilege to be here, an honor. Um, I'm in the Beit Midrash here every day. I can testify to the, the quality of the students that Drisha attracts, uh, some, which, some of whom are here tonight. So you're, this is a very appropriate place to uh, memorialize your parents. I'm going to be going back and forth um, to my computer. So, or it's like, uh, you see over here the first image uh, on the screen right now. This is a Zionistic Haggadah from the mid 20th century. Um, you can see in the forefront of the picture uh, the camps, the Holocaust camps. On the way through, I imagine this is Cyprus or somewhere along the way. And then you have uh, the promised land in the background. You have the land of Israel. Um, I don't know if you can see the words, Al talking about this land as the land which God has given to the Jewish people from enslavement to freedom. Let us sing in front of God a new song. So what this simple picture is doing is actually conceptually huge. This picture is creating a narrative which juxtaposes the Holocaust with the state of Israel. Or better, it uses the Exodus narrative to frame the progression from Holocaust to Israel. According to this picture and the Haggadah, which is inside of it, which it represents, the Exodus, which we want to be focusing on on Pesach night, the Leil HaSeder, is the Exodus tale of freedom from, from physical and national genocidal persecution to independence, to a land of our own, to statehood, self-defense, to becoming a nation like all other nations. Let's take a look at the next one. You, can, you want to do it? This is the cover of the San Diego's Woman's Haggadah. Uh, this is from 1980. Uh, I'll show you a poem which is on the inside. I'll read it to you. It's called For Us. I'll read you the last stanza. We who are Jane and Miriam and Sylvia and Irene and Betsy and Jeannie stand together to rejoice, for we have been oppressed but have ridden of triumph and pride. We stand together to rejoice, for we are women. What this Haggadah represents, what this poem represents, the story that this Haggadah is telling us is that the Exodus tale of freedom is essentially the tale of freedom from the slavery of patriarchy, from a world wherein women don't have the vote, where perhaps the suffragettes are Moshe Rabbeinu, where every time a woman is barred from a profession or a club or denied equal pay, is another day in Egypt, another day building bricks and pyramids in a land not of their own. Or how about this next one? The next one is the Freedom Seder Haggadah, a new Haggadah for Passover 1970. This is a Haggadah which, uh, which celebrates the civil rights movement uh, of the 1960s. And as you can imagine, in this Haggadah, Egypt is no longer Egypt, which you know from the Middle East. Egypt is denial of civil rights. Egypt is move to the back of the bus. Egypt is don't move into this neighborhood. Egypt is you can fight for us in World War II, but don't expect to have a voice in you know, your elected officials who will send you there again. Uh, according to this picture, according to this Haggadah, the exodus which we want to be focusing on on Pesach night, on the Leila Seder, is the exodus tale of freedom from pre-1964 and the Civil Rights Act until post. There are many other such images that I could have brought to you here. Uh, for example, images from the Haggadah for Gloibers and Apikorsim, the Haggadah for Believers and Atheists, this is published in Kharkov in 1923 and speaks of the freedom from the slavery of capitalism to the freedom of communism. 
listen to this reading before the Orchas. Orchas is the hand-washing uh, at the beginning of the Seder where there's no uh, blessing made. Here's what they want you to say before you perform that ritual. Wash off all the bourgeois mud. Wash off the mold of generations. And do not say a blessing, say a curse. Devastation must come upon all the old rabbinical laws and customs. Which is a very sweet and gentle way of introducing the Seder. <laughs> or, here's another one which you might know uh, from... This is from a similar gada. So everyone here, I assume, knows uh, the song. You might know, Avadim Hayinu. Oh, everyone's nodding good. Avadayinu. The Faro Bim Mitzray, right? So, try this ditty. We were slaves of Capitol until October, which is the October Revolution. Until October came and led us out of the land of exploitation with a strong hand. And if it were not for October, we and our children would still be slaves. So that one is maybe a little bit less familiar. What's that? Not as catchy? But when I sing it, you all want to buy the CD. Now, originally, absolutely not. I just don't, I just don't, I speak very, I spe- you, you ideally should, but YouTube had no such videos, unfortunately. Um, on the one hand, these Haggadot are creative and they're innovative. These are not your traditional Haggadot. These do not create some sort of classic Seder experience, which we're used to. And on the other hand, and this is kind of what I want to argue tonight, on the other hand, these Haggadot could not be more traditional. And that's because of the fact that all of these readings share the common interpretive move of recognizing that at the core, at the essential core of the Passover narrative in, its, in the structural elements, the basic elements, is a deeply compelling tale of transition from slavery on the one hand to freedom on the other, on the other capital S, capital F. And getting into the conversation about what is slavery, you know, of slavery to freedom, you have to confront some basic questions, argue all of these texts. What is slavery? What is freedom? And, you know, crucially, how do you get from slavery to freedom? These are topics of perennial and universal human concern and Jewish concern. And whenever you think of their specific takes on the issues, they all understand that what is at stake on Leil HaSeder, on the Seder night, are some of the most basic human and Jewish questions we could possibly address. This shared interpretive move, I want to argue, is a time-honored one. While these are, have all been 20th century readings, I'm interested in exploring with you some much earlier readings of the Exodus, which share that same basic move that understand that the Pesach narrative is one that discusses the most, ba- most basic of human questions. Specifically, I want to share with you some fundamental and, in terms of Western culture, seminal readings um, of the Exodus story. Now, the interesting thing about the readings which we're about to encounter is that while uh, what I've shown you, at least, from these readings thus far, uh, focus on the general elements of the narrative, people were enslaved, there's a process of redemption, and they reached freedom. The following readings, which we're going to spend the next uh, little while occupying ourselves with, get much more into the details of the biblical text, of the story, and they find their elements which become absolutely crucial to defining, in fact, the broader story and its import for us. So, to begin, I'm going to need a little bit of help. So if you look around you, you'll notice that you are currently in Egypt about 3,000 years ago, obviously. And um, 
we will get more exact to a, you know, on the Google Maps and you're in Goshen. If you zoom in a little further, you'll see that you're living in one of those huts in Goshen. And guess what? It is the Exodus night. Mazal tov. And um, what I need someone to do or some people to do is describe to the rest of us what you've been doing tonight and what you see around you. What's been going on tonight? Hmm. little Bible test, right? So one thing we've done is slaughtered our Paschal sacrifice. Yes? Uh, we hear the sounds of outcry. We hear the sounds of outcry. Emit- what are the sounds of outcry from? From the uh, mourning over, or shocking mourning over the death of the The death of the firstborns is also happening tonight, yeah. What's that? We've blood in our doorposts. Good. With hyssop. Oh, so we have like some biblical scholars, actually. <laughs> um, a little exact. Okay, good. Um, in fact, what you've been describing, you've sort of hit the nail on the head, maybe blood, bread, and redemption gave it away, um, is this picture over here, which is actually a photograph, grainy, but, but good. Um, and you'll notice that here's Dad, who is wiping, here's the hyssop, here's your hyssop, wiping blood on the doorpost and on the, on the lintel, and you can see it looks like he's painting a turtle, um, which is also kind of cute. But, um, and here's the kids, here's the kids watching. So if I asked you what, you know, where this blood came from, you would all respond instantaneously, the Paschal Lamb, right? So according to Rav Machab and Cheresh, you are only half correct, okay? You're only, ha- you're only half correct, besides the, fact that <laughs> besides the goat part. If you, the first source in your sheet is a Mechilta. The Mechilta is a Tanaitic Midrash. Um, so we're somewhere around, let's say, the second century CE, give or take, and he's commenting on Parshat Bo, right? So we're in the thick of the night of the, uh, of the Exodus narrative. And he's commenting on the verse in Exodus 12 where the Israelites are commanded to take the Paschal lamb four days uh, before the sacrifice is to actually be, actually be offered. And the Torah tells us, You're supposed to actually keep this sacrifice. You shall, ye shall keep it. So, Ramadan um, is interested in the following question. How come it took us four days to get from uh, getting hold of the sacrifice until we actually offered it? Can I actually have a reader, English or Hebrew does not matter, uh, of the Mechilta? Yes, too. Okay. So, according to the Mater Nicheresh, while, yes, this blood is the blood of the Paschal Lamb, what else is it? 
blood of circumcision. So the question is, where, what is he talking about? Right? Where did he get that from? Who mentioned circumcision? So let's unpack what just happened. First of all, next on your sheets, or actually, this, actually in two, sorry, excuse me, the second set of sources after is Yechezkel. Pardon me? You mean the number four per se? That I'm not as sure about. If you have any ideas, I'm, welcome, I'm happy to take them at some point um, in a few minutes. But um, just one second. We're going to look at Yechezkel 16, uh, which is the source text for this, uh, for this passage. So, do you have a comment you want, to, you want to make now, or do you want to... Yeah, hold on to it for now, okay? We'll, have, we'll hear it later. So, Yechezkel 16 is a passage which seemingly has nothing to do with anything we're talking about tonight. Um, and it's a passage basically where God describes the birthing of the people of Israel. Uh, God says, you know, you came from Canaanites and Amorites and Hittites. And it basically happened as, as, as follows. A female child baby was born, but was not swaddled, was not washed off, was not cared for at all, but rather was left abandoned. We are that baby, by the way. Was left abandoned. No eye pitied thee. Um, no one had any compassion upon this baby left in the field left by the road. And verse 6 says, And when I passed by you, and I saw you wallowing in your blood, and the Hebrew here, we're now in verse 6, so we're in Ezekiel 16:6. The Hebrew is, I passed over you, and I saw you, and I saw you wallowing in your blood, and I said to you, which may, you know, your ears may perk up right now, we say this at, uh, at the circumcision ceremony. We actually also say it at the Leil HaSeder. It's in our Haggadah. But that actually, just so you know, FYI, is a Kabbalistic innovation. It does not appear before the Kabbalists marched on the scene. But the was inserted by them for Kabbalistic reasons, which we won't get into right now because I don't understand them at all. Um, thanks. Um, but uh, in any event, God says you shall live bit in your blood. We'll leave, it, we'll leave it there for now, perhaps despite your blood. And then God comes and says, uh, I caused you to increase. And essentially this child, this female child, grows up and matures in verse 7, um, graphically, and yet is still naked and bare, meaning that no one's taking care of this child over all of these many years. And verse 8, when I passed over you, I looked at you again and I said, thy time was the time of love. I spread my skirt over thee and covered your nakedness and entered a covenant to you. In other words, God decides to marry this abandoned child, uh, take pity upon it, and, um, and create a covenant. Then in verse 9, God washes the child with water, cleans away that blood, and anointed the child with oil. Now, by the way, what's the blood the child's wallowing in? It's a female child. It's not, it's not Damila. It's not the blood of a circumcision. What's the placental, placental blood? It's afterbirth. Okay? So the child is lying and wallowing in the afterbirth, which no one bothered to clean up. Okay? So it's quite a striking metaphor, as Hezkel likes to create often. It's quite a graphic metaphor, as Hezkel likes to engage in. But what does that have to do with Passover? Rather than thought it did, right? What does that have to do with Passover? So here I'll, here I'll actually take some, uh, some hands. Right? What do you see in this passage? And the Hebrew will be helpful here, but not uh, sana qua non. What, will allow, what allows you to go from this passage and say, ah, you know what this is? This is Yechezkel talking about Pesach. Yeah, Rob. 
Oh, so that's quite sophisticated reading. That's a good reading. So what Rob points out is that the Pesach story, among other things, is a story of the birthing of the people of Israel. Rob made allusions to the splitting of the sea as the birth canal, essentially, through which the people of Israel you know, went through. While we're at it, there are those, and we won't get into this too much, but there are those who see this as the womb, right, going out through that blood um, on the way into life and a rebirthing uh, into becoming the people of Israel, but you can sort of, put that, you can sort of bracket that for the moment. So on the, in the global sense, yes, absolutely, we're talking about the birthing of the people of Israel in feminine form, albeit, yeah. Did you have a hand up, sir? Yeah. Alright, so Stu points out that in Jeremiah we talk about how um, when Israel was in the desert they were young, right? They were a young, fresh bride, which would link up with this reading of Yechezkel, which would mean that a little while earlier, points out maybe 40 years, 39 years, they would have been a child. That's a very good point. Other points. Think textually, by the way. You're all thinking ideationally, which is good, but think textually for a moment. What about this text sends you to Pesach? Yes. If you want to focus on the Bibamayat Yeah. Correct, correct. And where do you see, by the way, you see mention of covenant in the Yechezkel in verse uh, 8. And I enter into a covenant with you. So indeed, your point is, hits the nail on the head. We're exactly talking about covenant. Okay, so far we talked about babyness and we talked about covenant. Yes, sir? I can't quite hear you. you can. Ah, so right away we have... Ah, passed over you, exactly. So right away, perhaps the most prominent link between this passage and Exodus, which actually will allow one to claim that this passage is describing Exodus, is the appearance of God passing over... Someone. Now, not only does that root, ayin, vav, resh, va'avor, appear in the Exodus narrative. You you're saying something more? No. Not only does it appear in the past. Pardon me? Exactly. So we have that right away where God passes over the houses and passes over Egypt and does not kill the firstborn. The ayin, vav, resh actually appears other times in the story in somewhat more subtle ways, but just as significantly. For example, we are to instruct our children that, perhaps pointing to the matzah maror, according to the rabbis, ba'avor zeh asali Hashem because of this, ba'avor ayin vavrish, a different usage of the same shoresh. Uh, and not only that, I'll give you another more, even more subtle one, but I think uh, a more pointed one. In chapter 13 of Exodus, uh, verse 12, God uh, commands the Israelites to dedicate their firstborn of both the children, human children, and flocks to God. And that makes sense, by the way, because of the point mentioned over here about Makat Becharot and killing the firstborn. That part you know, makes a lot of sense. So guess what God says? You shall pass over all of the, the first fruits of the womb onto God, which is not the most obvious of terms one could have used. 
In short, what I'm claiming is that Ayn Vav, Ayn Vav, one second, sir, Ayn Vav Resh is actually uh, an essential, Ayn, did I say Vav this entire time, which is Iver, which is blind? Yeah, thank you. That's what you guys were saying. Ayn Bet Resh, thank you. Um, La'avor um, is a, it's called a light board, is, is a key word in these stories, which speaks of the theme of transition, of passing over, of moving from one state to another. Uh, within, within the narrative, think about the, the, the way you say fetus, right, ubar, right? The, the transition one makes um, from uh, before birth and after birth from one state to another, and again, an avenue which we don't have time to explore fully right now, but note that Avraham ha'ivri, Avraham the Hebrew, me'ever ha'nahar, is taken from across the river, which in fact is recited at the Seder as one of the core texts, and God took Avraham Me'ever from where his family were idol worshippers, and brought Avraham forward and passed on the covenant, etc., etc., etc. This is in Joshua. The notion of transition of birthing is key to the story and essentially links up Yechezkel to Exodus. Yeah. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm not claiming that the two are just anonymous at all. Yeah, absolutely. Yes? Uh, uh, Revava. Right, exactly. And exactly. In the Seder, right, in the, in the Midrash, which is part of Magid, we in fact make reference to that, right? Virav, atzum virav. As it says, Rivava here, that's that the link between this verse, that's how it's linked up into, into the Seder. Not with the Ma'achai, by the way, but just that verse. So absolutely, we have that as well. Anything else? We have Brit, we have Ayin Vav, Ayin, I did again, Ayin Vet Resh. Anything else? We have a lot of blood, right? Which I'm sure you've all been dying to talk more about. So we have this infant uh, wallowing in blood, but the Ma'achai, which is then washed off. Now, blood in the Exodus narrative obviously appears right over here and also appears in the Plague of Blood. Right? Blood is actually pops up all over the place. Let me point out another place where it pops up in the general story, and this is back in chapter 4, in Exodus chapter 4. Because in Exodus chapter 4, um, I don't have the verse number with me right now, do I? Yes, here it is. In verse, 20, in verse 24, we have this very, very odd, mysterious story, which no one quite gets, which is at the Malone, as Adina points out, right? And this story is that Avram's returning from, Avram, Moshe is retur- returning from Midian on his way back to Egypt, and he stops at this inn on the way, and God meets him. This is not on your sheets, by the way. I should clarify that. I'm sorry. It's not on your sheets. Um, God meets Moshe at that inn and desires to kill Moshe. So, what happens? Sipora takes a flint of great of the sun. And what does she do with that? Don't she do? She okay, so about so the words there, very good. The words are vatag. Pardon me. And, one second. Right, it does. Good. You guys are a little bit too good. Exactly. Vatagar la glove. She takes the orlat vina and she touches it lira glove. 
Who's the of? Who are we talking about? Moshe, perhaps right. What does regal mean? Does it mean foot? Is it a euphemism for the male organ, for the genitalia? Maybe. Not really clear. In any event, she touches it to his feet, and what happens? Lo and behold, God leaves him, leaves Moshe alone, and she says what this, what this uh, gentleman just said, Chatan damim atali, right? you are a, um, a uh, bloody bridegroom onto me, as it's often translated, whatever the heck that means, or you are a groom of bloods to me, or blood to me. And then she actually says, when God leaves him alone, Azamra chatan damim lamulot, you are, a, you are a bloody bridegroom onto me, for, because of, on account of the circumcision, whatever, whatever that actually means. Okay, so when God tells Moshe later on about this blood, okay, he tells him, you know, put this blood on the lintels, so God says, the chumen hadam, take the blood, right, take this blood, and not new, um, just lost my place here, excuse me, and you shall, you know, not time, you shall, you know, place it, put it on, you know, give it to, put it on to the lintels on the doorpost, and that's where it'll be, and that'll, you know, protect the house. But when Moshe, in a few verses later, decides to, you know, like, tweet this message to, to, the, to the Israelites, you guys know Twitter? Yeah. Tweet? Um, to, to, uh, to, to, to the Israelites, he changes the wording as sometimes he does. Because when Moshe says it, he says as follows, You shall basically, you know, make touching, essentially. You shall touch the blood onto the lintels and the doorpost. Why did he change it from v'natnu to v'higa'atem? So what I think is Moshe's doing here is Moshe's referencing his own experience in chapter 4. Right, where blood is, with that shoresh, uh, touched to, touched onto a given surface, the blood of, ah, the circumcision. Right? It's touched onto a given surface, which serves to protect the people who are underneath that surface or associated with that surface from God's punishment. Okay? So that being the case, um, we see that, or maybe Ramachia sees that, there's actually a local connection here I mean, in the Nexus narrative in general between blood of the lamb, blood of the circumcision, placing it on doorposts in order to protect from God's punishment. And remember that the Mechilta here, the Medrash, where Matya cites uh, Zechariah, Zechariah here, where Zechariah makes reference to Dam Biritech, right? The blood of covenant, yes, but the blood of your covenant also means in Breshid, also the Abrahamic covenant, right? The Brit Milah, the Bris, right? So that's how he sort of ties it all together. Now, everything we've done right now, which has been very good, okay, uh, has been served to, I think, establish that on an exegetical level, that Rav Macha's reading is quite possibly, it's actually a scrupulous intertextual reading. It actually might be somewhat of the pshat, actually. Um, an incredible connection. But all that does is serve to render his reading plausible and interesting. But what we don't yet understand or know is what compelled Rav Matya to offer this kind of wild interpretation of Dam Pesach and Dam Mila. What actually made him do that? So it turns out that in the Mechilta, which, which Stu read for us, there's actually a meta-message which is made explicit uh, within the text. Says the text, God came for day, God wanted to uh, redeem Israel, but what was the problem? Lo hayu bi adam, lo hayabi adam mitzvot 
But they had no mitzvot. God wanted to redeem Israel, but there were no mitzvot that they had done. So God could not redeem Israel. So God therefore gives Israel the mitzvah of this, Dam Pesach, and Dam Mila, in order that they might be redeemed. Now, why is that all necessary? Well, the look at the last few, what, six, seven words of that midrash on the front page of the, of the source sheet. Why? Because one, does not, one is not rewarded except through, one is only rewarded through ma'aseh, through action. Because we are only rewarded through action, says Rav Matya, it was impossible for God to redeem Israel, I don't care if it's eight dodim or not, the time of love or not, it was impossible for God to redeem Israel until they had mitzvot in their hand. What was that mitzvah? Circumcision. So circumcision and ma'aseh apparently are prerequisites for redemption. Rav Matya actually insists upon that. He sticks it in there. It's a good reading of Yecheskel, I grant it, but he, he insists, insists on inserting into the story. Why? Okay, so let, let's pause there for a moment. I'm going to pause on this text. And I want to shift to another reading of, of this blood. And this picture you may recognize as well, or something akin to this picture. Okay, look familiar? So, you guys know who this is? <laughs> so, you know, if a picture's worth a thousand words, fine. So this is worth at least 500 words. What you have here is Jesus, suffering servant. Here is the lamb. You see the blood all over the place? Okay, so that's basically the narrative in a snapshot. What's that narrative? Well, let's actually go through some text, and I'll, I'll show you some text which describe the narrative more eloquently than I could summarize. John said, The next day, John seeth Jesus coming on to him and saith, and God, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And he sees Jesus coming, and he's baptizing, so he says, Here comes the Lamb of the world, which takes away the sin of the world. Right? Remember, lambs are sacrifices which expiate, which serve to be uh, mechaper on sin. What's the lamb he's talking about? It's probably a reference to Isaiah 53, which is the suffering servant passage, which has been read uh, a lot um, as the site of sort of interpretive battle between Christianity and Judaism. And there's a re- in, in the midst of this discussion of the description of the wounded servant because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities, um, we're all turning astray. He was oppressed. He humbled himself as a lamb that is led to the slaughter. As a lamb that's led to the slaughter. So who is Isaiah talking about? He's talking about Jesus, obviously. Right? Jesus is the lamb who is led to the slaughter on behalf of our sins. He is our suffering servant. And not only, you know, Jesus is the lamb, but guess what? His blood also expiates. Okay, take a look at Matthew. This is the, you know, the Last Supper. This is that Seder, right? This is the, this is, uh, the source text for the Eucharist uh, sacrament. Jesus is eating. They take bread. He breaks it. He gives it to his disciples and says, take, eat, this is, this is my body. And then he takes the cup and he gives thanks and he gave it to them and says, drink it. For this is my blood of the Brita Chadasha. This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remissions of sins. So it's all one theme here. Jesus is the lamb and Jesus' blood is shed in order to be mechaper al-kalavanot, in, in order to atone for all of our sins. Just like the blood of a sacrifice is often sprinkled upon the altar in the temple in order to finalize the process of 
expiation. So that basically is the story um, until, you get to, until you get to Paul. In short, just as the Lamb's death protected the people from divine punishment and opened the door to them for redemption, so too does the sacrificial death of Jesus, the Lamb, act to redeem the world from its sins. Okay, this is a pretty known a pretty known narrative. So I'll go on to the next step of the narrative, which also is known. I won't belabor the point. According to Paul, at least according to Paul, and Paul's intellectual descendants, Jesus' life and passion mark entry into a new understanding of life in general. And that is uh, a, new under- a life which is of the spirit rather than of, of the flesh. Right? A redemption that means a faith rather than works. In short, it's a supersession of the law and the beginning of a new covenant, or what we're going to call a New Testament. Okay? That's, the, that's the basic story. Now, this theoretical picture, right, this, sort of, this sort of like metaphorical picture, was embodied, uh, full pun intended, uh, in conversations about circumcision in the period. For our purposes, let's just note the following, that the spilled blood from Jesus' uh, circumcision ended the need for circumcision of the many. This, by the way, I should have mentioned before, for our Passover also has been sacrificed even Christ, we're in Paul right now, but right, Jesus as the Paschal Lamb, that's also very well developed. In terms of cir- circumcision, there's a lot of text we can cite here. I'm doing this very, very quickly. So Paul says in Galatians, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will profit you nothing. I testify again to every man that receives circumcision that he is a debtor to do the whole law. For Paul, you don't want to be a debtor to the whole law because you will fail. The law will only bring you guilt. Ye are severed from Christ, ye who be justified by the law. You're fallen away from grace. We through the Spirit by faith wait for the hope of the righteousness. For in Jesus neither circumcision avails anything nor nor uncircumcision, but faith working through whatever it says in the end of that. I do not know Galatians by heart, I I will admit. Um... Furthermore, nope. That's the, the punchline, right? Um, essentially, um, and he says, he says elsewhere, I don't, have the, I don't have the quote here, apparently, that once Jesus received circumcision, the many were relieved of the duty to, to undergo circumcision. The masses no longer had to do that. In other words, the blood from Jesus' circumcision releases us from all the, from us, the males, from the need to perform circumcision. It's been done. The spilt blood has been mechaper. Don't worry about it. We're now in the land of faith rather than works of the spirit rather than the flesh, which is circumcised. It's a new covenant entirely. So if I'm speaking as Paul, and at the risk of oversimplifying here, here here's the true Passover story. Here's Pesach. Slavery in Egypt are the life that we're in, with a sinful nature so deeply embedded in our humanity that we are mired in it, stuck in it. No matter what we do, we cannot claw our way out of it. And the law, which was supposed to get us out of this to begin with, to be our ladder to redemption, in fact, paradoxically, leads us only to death. Because on our attempt to enter into, you know, return to Eden, to the promised land, we just can't get past the spinning sword of sin and fleshiness and the law which only further enslaves. What does the law create? Not redemption. The law creates slavery and guilt. All of a sudden, I'm going, mm-hmm. So, um, guilt, yes, 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 indeed. Right? We constantly fail. 
Right? We can't possibly do this. So freedom is freedom from sin into redemption, but not via the law. Freedom is via the Delarosa. So via Delarosa, freedom is via Jesus, the Lamb of God, the sacrifice, who spilt blood protects us, who expiates our sins, who allows us into Eden, who allows us to eat of the tree of life, who allows us, in short, to achieve redemption. Okay, so I can see in the back of the room Rav Matim Nechir squirming in his seat. Squirming in his seat. And, yes, so we'll call on him, Mati, and you may, you may speak up. What's bothering him so much? So he yells out, first of all, here's my story of Pesach. Circumcision, which is exemplary of the law. Circumcision is the key to redemption. If for you, this blood, originally before, blood was the blood of Jesus... In my true Pesach story, blood is the blood of the circumcision. Blood is the blood of halacha. Blood is the blood of the law, blood of action, of, of mitzvah. Mitzvah is the way to redemption. Mitzvah is a catalyst for our getting out of this mire that we're stuck in. And by the way, by the way, note back in that mechilta, I don't know if people caught this or didn't catch this, note in the mechilta the reversed order of the verses cited from Yechezkel. Did you catch that? Do you know that when Rav Machia cites Yechezkel and creates a story out of it, what's the order of the verses he brings, what's the order in which he brings the verses? Can you see that on the first page there? Eight, seven, six. Is it counting down? Counting down. He does not go six, seven, eight. Now why does he do that? It's, it's, it's actually subversive, right? Why does he do that? Well, because if you take the story of six, seven, eight, guess what you have? You have a story of a wallowing infant who by definition uh, while a, p- a pitiful infant wallowing in her blood, who by definition cannot do anything, and through God's compassion and grace, is saved. Right? That's how it works. Exactly. Exactly. So what Ramatha does is say, let me flip over that story and turn it on his head. Let me neutralize effectively the Echeskel metaphor and take the teeth right out of it. And instead say, you know what Echeskel is saying? It's as follows. Originally, I came to you and I wanted to, verse 8, and I wanted to marry you, but I couldn't because you were bereft of mitzvot. You were nude. So what did I say? B'demai chayi, b'demai chayi. Now what does b'demai chayi, b'demai chayi mean? Now bet in Hebrew can mean different things, right? Bet can mean if, in, with, through. So, you know, my first reading of Yechezkel, probably most of our first readings were, something along the lines, and this is how Rashi reads it, Despite your blood, you shall live. Despite your blood. I know you're in your blood, but nonetheless, you shall live. Right? Now, so Rav Macha says, you guys only know Aleph Beis. Not only do you not know anything else. Aleph Beis, bet here means through. Through, through blood you shall live. Through the bloods. And by the way, it's not, blood, it's not only one blood. Depends which Rashi you're looking at, but it might mean bidamayach, damim, which is plural, or bidamayachayi, bidamayachayi, the repetition of which indicates a plurality. But either way, you have through your bloods, cap, uh, S at the end there, through the plural bloods, you shall live. What are those bloods? Blood. Dam Pesach and Dam Mila. Dam Pesach and Dam Mila. Now, Mila, man, dachar shemeh, as the Gemara might say. Who, men- who mentioned Mila? Well, it's critical we mention Mila at this point because. Ramatya is responding to a world in which circumcision is exactly that which has been supplanted. Now, consider later on in the Midrash, you do not have this on your sheets. Later on in the Midrash, I'm going to read you something about Yehuda, the same text. Yehuda ben Becerra says as follows. Okay? Ready? So, it says in the Torah that the people would not listen to Moshe when he came to herald 
you know, the, the, redem- the exodus because of shortness of spirit, something along those lines, right? They were, remember that kasha, they were working too hard, right? They didn't believe anymore. They lost any hope. Right? We know that's like in life, right? Sometimes you lose hope to such an extent that you won't even hear redemption God knocking on the door. You're deaf to it. You're utterly deaf to it because you just do not believe it's possible. You do not, think about the first slide we saw. The first slide we saw. You do not go away, Moshe. I don't believe you at all. You're totally ridiculous. So Rabbi Huda says, I don't understand. Why do they not believe Moshe? He didn't see our slide. Why do they not believe Moshe? Here's what he says. You ready? You don't have to send your sheets. So just listen, just listen to the word. I'm going I'm to translate fairly literally. Okay? Could it be that you have an Adam or a person who is heralding good news and you will not rejoice? A male child is born unto thee. Your rabbi is going to lead you into freedom and you shall not rejoice. So maybe I'm overreading, maybe I'm not. I can't help but seeing Christological references here as well. And therefore, in short, we asked from the beginning, what compelled, not what allowed, what allowed Ramatha to do his midrash was a very scrupulous and skilled reading of Yechezkel to such an extent that he makes me think Yechezkel was speaking shot about Shemot. Fine. But what compelled Ramatha to speak up at this point what wouldn't let him stay silent was a response. He's a Hitana living in the second, about the second century in the Mechilta, which is not, this is not rare for the Mechilta. What is, what is motivating him is a response either to, I don't mean to Paul, I don't know if he read anything, read Galatians, I have, no, I have no idea, but something in the air, some voice floating around Judea around that time saying, you cannot achieve redemption through, through works, only through faith. Through works, right? Look at the end of that Midrash again. A note, Lin. I called it actions before. No. What it means is, you can, we only receive reward via works. Via works. This is a direct response. I, I'm arguing. Um, a direct response to the early Christian claim as embodied uh, and exemplified in the various texts that we've seen here and many, many others. Anyway, it's crucial for Machia that there be Dam Mila at, at that point. So in short, therefore, according to Rav Machia, on this night, on Leil HaSeder, the true story of Pesach is that we recommit to our understanding of the role of mitzvah, of the state of being mitzvah of being commanded and performing actions and doing in a perennial quest for holiness and for redemption and meaning. That's where mitzvah stands. That's where we meet mitzvah. According to this midrash, that's the true story. That's the true story of Pesach. Let me, let me pause for one moment and I'll take Stu's question and maybe one other. Yeah. Indeed, thank you. And, and, if, and if you'd like a bibliography of such um, readings of rabbinic texts, then it is easily, it's easily available. By the way, in terms of Pesach, I'll cite to you, Yisrael Yuval's Shnei Goyim Bivitnech, Two Nations Who Are in, in Your Womb. He may be perhaps radical, depends on who you ask, but he sees much of the state there as being, in effect, a response, a polemic to and against Christianity and Christian claims. Okay, so Ayin Sham, you can look there, but thank you. Yes.
So that even strengthens my point. Yes, thank you. I did not, I actually did not know that story, so thank you very much. Yes, thank you. Okay. We're going to wrap up pretty soon, but not quite yet. I titled tonight's talk, Blood, Bread, and Redemption. So we've talked about blood, um, perhaps more than you wanted to, and redemption. Um, we haven't talked about bread yet. But I've described the Pauline reading so far as the one, that's the one which shifts the conversation about slavery and freedom away from action, away from Misa, and towards matters of the spirit. But in truth, in truth, that tendency is found in rabbinic sources as well. Now, biblically and rabbinically, and sort of we all know this from our own, from our own lives or things that we've seen, chametz is an extraordinarily stringent prohibition. Extraordinarily stringent prohibition. Uh, Rav Menachem Kasher, and I have not seen this firsthand, I will say, I saw this secondhand. Rav Menachem Kasher notes six ways in which the laws of chametz are akin only to the laws of, of Avodah Zarah, to idolatry. Let me cite you some of those, some of those laws. When you look at the halachot of chametz, look what pops up. First, chametz and Avodah Zarah share the prohibition against possession. You can't even own either one of them. Forget eating them, meaning food which was... Um, offered to an idol, or which is chametz dik, which is chametz and Pesach, may not even be owned. Second, both require destruction, tashbitu, both require utter destruction. One must actually proactively, proactively destroy chametz. To such an extent, by the way, that there's a conversation about if one does not own chametz, must one go out before Pesach, purchase chametz in order to be mekayim the mitzvah's ase and to fulfill the positive commandment of being Va'er the chametz of burning the chametz. It's possible that the Rambam says explicitly not, but that doesn't mean that the voice is not there. Okay, so there is that possibility, right, of the mitzvah say It says tashbitu, so you better get yourself some chametz. That's why you have perm, right? So you have hamantashen, so you can burn the chametz on Pesach. Number three. Additionally, neither chametz nor an idol, for example, can be um, rendered batel, nullified, when mixed with other items. Normally in Hilchot Kashrut, so we know we have a ta'arobah, the mixture, so with regards to many things, but not all things, it's a little bit complicated, we'll say that it is batel if you cannot taste that object. Right? So milk falls into meat, so you can't taste it, or if it's less than 160th, then you're okay. Right? You can't do that on purpose, but, but, that, but, that, but that's okay. If chametz falls into your pot, you cannot eat anything, according to the halacha. It's not nullified. I don't care how little it is. Right? There's no such thing as negligible. No such thing as a negligible amount of chametz. If it was before Pesach, if it was in before Pesach, that's one thing. But on Pesach itself, once it achieves the status of chametz de Pesach, then it can never, never be nullified. And the same applies to food uh, offered uh, in idolatrous wor- worship. And finally, both require a badika of sorts, claims of kosher. We obviously know that we search for the chametz before Pesach, and the Israelites were to search for idols in the land of Israel upon their arrival in the land. I mean, there's a very sort of serious, um, not bordering on, but full-fledged, obsessive-compulsive, mandated, right, legalistic approaches to chametz and Avodah Zarah uh, in the culture. And the question is, why? Where did that come from? So, 
To answer that, we're going to go back to Egypt, but not, not 3,000 years ago, but rather to about 15th century CE to the Radbaz. Radbaz was David ben Zimri, who actually was born in Spain and then made his way, like a lot of figures around that time, to, to Sfat and then back to Egypt and all over the place. But in any event, he, this is, and this is the last source which is brought in your little packets there, uh, the Radbaz was asked, why do we take chametz so seriously? Why do we take chametz so seriously? So you have translations there, but do you mind reading actually um, the, uh, reading the question in, in Hebrew, please? You can follow along in the English, which is on the last page. Here our cutie is, this asker. Why is Chametz and Pesach so different from all of these Surim, all the prohibitions on, on the Torah? How come we have to basically totally destroy it? Gotta get, search it out. And you have to burn it. You have to be midvatel. You have to nullify it verbally. What is going on here? This person asks. And then the rabbis come in. So let me just pause you here, because et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? That you have to also search for it in the little cracks. You've seen people do this. You've done this yourself. In little cracks, some people will take out the book, and they'll go like this, lest there be some crumbs in there, because, you know, it's all in one book. Then it all combines into a sheer kazayas. It's all one unit. And then you have a problem with chametz and pesach. And, you know, anywhere possibly there might have been chametz to go out and search it out and then destroy it proactively and then tell it. And if you own it, then you violate two portions, ba'yira'em, ba'yimantzeh, lest you find chametz in possession what is going on here, right? So the Radbaz says a couple different answers, right? Um, do you see where it says tshuva? Um, let, me, um, let me see where this is on your sheet. Excuse me. Yeah, you see where it says tshuva on your sheet there? Um, the first one on the line is that, I don't know, seven, eight lines down. It says tshuva shni devarim nemeru, or in the, in the English it just says reply. Two things are said regarding this matter. Do you see that, ma'am? Do you see that? Do you want to point to it, Tanya? It's okay. Maybe like look to the person left and right to you and just make sure they have it as well. Yeah. Okay, so there's two answers. It's actually Hebrew. It's a, and it is punished by excision, kares. And people are not used to staying away from it because normally chametz is perfectly permissible, actually mandated on Shabbat, right? Yeah. Only chametz has these three, the 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 congruence of three. Uh, factors of severity. Number one, chametz is prohibited uh, even to benefit from it, forget eating it. Number two, if one violates the prohibition of eating chametz, then one, uh, the punishment biblically is karet, a spiritual excision. That's pretty serious. Usually reserved for it's pretty serious, but lo in and also people are not used to uh, 
staying away from it, so we better be very severe, right? So that's argument one, okay? That's argument one. So one thing is that there's the, the congruence, the meeting of all these three factors of severity, which accounts for uh, the, the obsessive-compulsive uh, prohibition against chametz. That's number one. Uh, number two, and this is number two B on your sheet, furthermore, the prohibition of chametz is one in which has the possibility of being released. It's called davar sheish matirin, for its prohibition is time-dependent, and that chametz is permitted after Passover. What he means is, bear with me with the legalistic uh, back and forth, what he means is that since chametz the same object, which is now utterly prohibited, will be permitted in just a few days, then we have a tendency to encourage you to wait those few days to eat it, the perfect permissibility, rather than allowing you somehow to nullify it now during Passover. Okay, if you didn't quite catch all those details, it does not matter. The point is as follows. Why we take chametz so seriously? The Radbaz gives two legalistic answers, essentially. However, the Radbaz says, and now I'm back on the English, and yet I have difficulties with the second answer, dot, 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 and I'm also intuitively uncomfortable with the first answer. What, because this prohibition is more severe than idolatry? But the Torah does not require us to search out idols and nullify them. So that's a little bit contrary to what we said before. I'll bracket that for now. What he, what, he, what he means is that not in the land of Israel. We, have no, we don't have to go around Manhattan looking for, right, or you know, probably looking for idols. Right? Even in our apartment, you don't have to go looking in our apartment for idols. You don't have to do that. So look what the Rabbah says. Therefore, I rely on that which the rabbi said in Midrashim, chametz on Passover is a hint of the evil inclination. It's a hint of the Yetzir Hara, Remez, like Yetzir Hara. And it is Seor Shabbat Isa, it is the leaven in the dough. Thus, one must totally chase it away and search it out of all hiding places in one's mind. And it is not considered negligible, it's never batel, even in minute amounts. And as, in case you weren't convinced, so how about this? This is true and correct. So now, if he didn't have you before, he's got you now, right? This is true and correct. Okay. Now, so for the Radbaz, therefore, note, and this is, by the way, frankly, in, in Pauline literature also, by the way, and it's in the Talmud also, right? This reference to Seor Sheba'isa, right? This uh, leaven in the dough, so I'm teaching in the State Midrash, Brachot this year, so on Brachot 17a, Rabbi Alexandri is explaining what stops people from serving God, and guess what it is? Seor Sheba Isa, the leaven in the dough. It, it's a time-honored reading of Chametz as akin to pointing towards Remezla Yitzer Hara, the evil inclination, all that which is in us, which prevents us from being who we want to be. To the Radbaz, therefore, okay? To the Radbaz, therefore, the actions we perform on Pesach, while indeed works of the body, while indeed works, point toward inner work that we need to do as well. Essentially, therefore, his response, and here's the Radbaz's true Pesach, his response to Paul would be, yes, chametz is malice. Yes, chametz is internal wickedness. Yes, chametz is character flaws. It is the Yitzhar Hara. But chametz is also chametz. And rather than seeing the, fact, the physical actions we take in getting rid of chametz as distracting us from that internal work, i.e. the spiritual work, those actions act as a remez to them. They open the door to that work. They alert us to that work. They concretize that work. They literally embody that work. Chametz remez leitzer hara. This is a very rabbinic Responsum. That the challenge rabbinic Jews have is to integrate 
all facets of their lives, the works of the body and the works of the spirit, because after all, we are both bodies and more than bodies. We are both bodies and spirit. To integrate all of that and figure out how to sanctify all dimensions of our being. Sanctifying and redeeming all facets of life and all facets indeed of ourselves is perhaps the bold and core enterprise of the rabbinic experiment at large. So in short, we've seen a lot of images tonight. Uh, We've learned a lot of stories and texts. We've seen ancient and medieval and modern, biblical and rabbinic, communistic and feministic. We've spoken uh, a heck heck of a lot more about about Jesus than you probably anticipated. Um, But perhaps the, the most fundamental of all thoughts that we could walk away with tonight, or I propose that we all walk away with this evening, is as follows. Every voice that we've seen, we've heard tonight, represents a deep and a serious attempt to deal with the issues that Pesach raises. What is slavery? What is freedom? What is the life of meaning, and what is the life without? And crucially, how indeed do we get from A to B? How do you get from one to the other? What all this teaches us, in the most broadest of senses, is that if we want to leave Egypt ourselves, then it is incumbent upon us all to take the opportunity in this Leil HaSeder to be Mesaper B'Tziat Mitzrayim, to discuss the Exodus, to sit at the Seder, and work out our own answers to these questions. Thank you very much. Chag Kasher V'Sameach.